It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I am your host, as always, Show. Thank you for listening and rating, reviewing, subscribing. The last episode of 2021. I said we'd get it in, and here we are, just under the wire, being published. You may be listening to it on another day, but you know what? It's being published on New Year's Eve. I, uh, hey, we don't have anywhere to go, right? I, what else am I going to do? I watch movies. So <laughs> we're doing this last, final episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast in 2021. What a weird year, huh? What a strange year. Um, did get to return to movie theaters for a little bit. We talked about that in a couple episodes. TIFF actually did sort of happen this year, half digital, half in person. We'll see what that looks like next September. But yeah, a strange year to look back on. I don't know what my, my biggest movie moments of the year were right i guess getting to see james bond finally getting to see no way home was certainly a big part of it we'll talk about that review and the review for matrix resurrections in this episode but um watching spider-man in a crowded movie theater with just the sheer energy coursing through the crowd i've talked about that before and how it's like akin to sporting events it had happened so infrequently in the last couple of years that it was it almost made me tear up a little bit. I mean, I'm not made of stone, right? I want I like movies. I want to see that too. So, I I um I was definitely that's definitely a highlight of 2021 as far as movies go. Um yeah, some 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 interesting stuff this year and a lot to look forward to next year as well, right? There actually there's so many movies in 2021 that I actually haven't seen yet. I mean, I still haven't seen The French Dispatch. I haven't seen Ghostbusters Afterlife, The Last Duel, King Richard, Spencer, The Harder They Fall, West Side Story, The King's Man, The Power of the Dog, which I missed out on. It's tip. I'm kind of bummed I didn't get to see that because that's one of the best movies. Although it is on Netflix, I think, so it should be relatively easy to watch. And The House of Gucci, which I've heard is actually quite bad. So I will have to squeeze all of those movies in. Um, and maybe, maybe I don't know if we'll squeeze them all into January, let's say, but we will watch them all. I'm hoping before the Oscars take place um, a little later on in a couple of months. But Boy, what a year. I hope you're all staying safe. Hope you're all staying well. Let's get right into the reviews. Let's get into the reviews for this uh, episode of the podcast. The latest entry into the Marvel Universe. The last one, again, right under the wire itself, Spider-Man No Way Home. And uh, the um, I, want, I don't want to call it a retread because it's not, but the most recent entry into the Matrix canon um, the Matrix 4, the Matrix Resurrections, as they're calling it. Also, a, an odd watch. An odd film, I gotta say, but we'll get into all of that straight ahead. Let's do it first with Marvel, Spider-Man No Way Home. I should probably start this review by saying right off the bat that there will be spoilers in this review, because if you listen to this podcast with any sort of regularity... Uh, you know that, you know, I like to talk about spoilers. It's 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 easier to talk about when you can talk about all aspects of the movie. But also, I feel like it's important to reiterate because, you know, this is the biggest movie of the year. So, uh, yeah, spoilers abound for this review of Spider-Man. Uh, no Way Home. And right off the bat, I guess I'll just say as well that I really like this movie. I think it's important to, to acknowledge, first of all, that it, it is fan service the movie it is one million percent there's no chance it's not i think it's a solid if you're looking for a number review you know i don't like to do that but if you're looking for a number review it's probably like a solid eight 
8 out of 10, right? I was going to say 8.5 out of 10, but I think 8 out of 10 seems right to me, mainly because I do think it relies a little too much on fan service, maybe a little too much on nostalgia, because of course, as the rumors suggested, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield do reprise their roles as their own versions of Peter Parker and Spider-Man and are in this film, and you saw from the trailer certainly as well that we're, we got all of their villains from their various Spider-Man movies. We know Noah Tover Grace as Venom, I'll say that much, but we didn't get Tover Grace as Venom, but we did get, uh, of course, Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin, Alfred Molina's Dr. Octopus, Doc Ock. We did get Reese Vaughn's Lizard, i.e. Dr. Connors, and we did get Jamie Foxx's Electro. Um, Electro did get a bit of a glow-up, which is kind of funny. They do acknowledge that he's not as like transparently blue as he was in uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, but um, he more. we'll get to Jamie Foxx in a bit, but he was pretty good. Uh, I, But yeah, I think the movie does use nostalgia and fan service, though, in... A pretty good way, I would say, right? I think it's interesting to think that other movies may have done it in in a dumber way or a way that made less sense. But I think utilizing Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and utilizing their villains from the previous movies, I think essentially enabled John Watts, the director of this film, to tell a different kind of Spider-Man story because I guess like in as it pertains to the MCU, right? Like this version of Spider-Man, Tom Holland's Spider-Man wasn't the exact Spider-Man we've all kind of known from the comic books and known from years of movies, which we're talking about now, but like you know what I mean? Like the Tom Holland Spider-Man had always been known as a kind of a protege of Iron Man, and then after Robert Downey Jr. left the MCU and Iron Man dies, you also see you know, you also kind of see that Spider-Man in Far From Home with Mysterio, Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio, you'd kind of seen that he had become the inheritor of, like, the the Iron Man legacy, kind of, right? And this movie, I think, does a great job of removing all of that and getting back down to, I guess, brass tacks as far as Spider-Man is concerned. But it also... I think gets to the core of what it means to be a superhero and what more specifically what it means for Spider-Man to be a hero. Because I guess like when, if you remember in Homecoming, I think Peter Parker, he essentially paraphrases the with great response, with great power comes great responsibility line. And I guess you, the viewer, like in, I was a part of this at the time as well. You know, I thought that that implied that there was an Uncle Ben character who had said it to him at some point prior to the events of even Civil War, because that's where you meet Spider-Man for the first time in the MCU. And, uh, you know what I mean? So I think, I think like, you kind of made a lot of assumptions, and it's possible it was something that was said to Peter by Uncle Ben, but as far, as far as it pertains to this movie, No Way Home, it was interesting because it felt a little more earned, right, from Marissa Tomei's Aunt May, because it's funny, Marissa Marissa Tomei's Aunt May has kind of always been viewed as the, oh man, look, Aunt May's hot now type character, and it was kind of like a running joke, even going back to when, like, Iron Man is, like, flirting with her in in Civil War and so on, Uh, but it's just, it's just so fascinating because you see what she does for a living, she works at a, a, uh, I guess, like, at a soup kitchen type place, right, like a homeless shelter, and so she, you know, is already you know, she looks, she has compassion for the less fortunate in the world. And she tries to instill that on Peter. And, you know, even when, 
Norman Osborn, i.e. the Green Goblin, you know, when you see the Norman Osborn version of him, and he's clearly, you know, I, we all knew this, but he was mentally ill, and he, he doesn't know where he is, and he doesn't know what's going on, and how he got to this place, and so on. Her first thought is that they should help him, and even after the uh, Green Goblin persona takes over Norman's mind, even on her deathbed, she tells Peter, you must always help other people, and then, you know, with great power becomes great responsibility. First of all, as soon as she said that line, you knew she was toast, right? Like, you knew she was donezo. But at the same time, it was interesting to see that you got you finally got that moment of, like, real gravitas for Peter Parker. So I thought it was, it was really great. And then, of course, to see the other Spider-Men come in and tell their stories and talk about how how their losses have affected them in life and you know they, they each get their moments and we'll talk about those in a sec but it's just i thought they used the fan service and nostalgia to great effect whereas other movies might have just squandered it for like a cheap to get the audience to to stand up and cheer right and don't get me wrong like they did cheer and that was a cool moment and it was a cool thing to have gone back into a movie theater for the first time in forever into like a movie theater like for a for a tentpole movie event, right? Because I'd gone back to see a couple movies, and, you know, I, I had intentionally gone to, like, middle-of-the-day showings or waited a while until, you know, I saw James Bond, for example, like, almost a month after it came out and so on. I think uh, seeing Spider-Man with, like, on opening night and everyone screaming at the fun references and Andrew Garfield coming through the portal and so on, it was all, it felt earned and it was exciting, right? And I think it's like, that kind of thing had been missing from movies for a long time just because of the pandemic, but, and hey, maybe we won't get to do that again for a while, but it was kind of cool in the moment. But anyways, I, I do want to keep talking about this film, and I guess uh, Tom Holland, again, he doesn't have to do too much here. He does get to emote a little more, but I think, by and large, the movie is stolen by its new uh, the newcomers, right? And uh, newcomers meaning guys we've all seen before, certainly, but the movie is certainly stolen, by, I think, in my opinion, by Andrew Garfield and by Willem Dafoe. Tommy McGuire is great, too, don't get me wrong, but, I mean, he, he is just asked to be kind of glib and the 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 wiser older a little quieter peter parker and i think the mo- the movie's arguably most powerful moment or maybe the second most powerful moment after the aunt may thing but you know it comes at the very end when peter tom holland's peter is about to kill norman he was without a doubt gonna murder norman osborne and you know kind of go to the dark side so to speak and tom mcguire he uh his peter stops tom holland from doing it and he doesn't even say anything not a word of dialogue is communicated in that scene except for a look and i think the power of that spider-man defending that green goblin given that they are from each other's movie i think was a really powerful moment for for a superhero movie certainly but it was really cool i gotta say really like that moment um that was probably the height of the toby Maguire parts right apart from some of the kind of fun quips and so on but andrew garfield i think maybe because like you know spider-man 1 and 2 with toby mcguire were already pretty well received spider-man 3 not so much but i think we all kind of laugh at that movie as just like campy at this point the uh, amazing spider-man movies 1 and 2 with andrew garfield i think have always been kind of panned right like i think the first one is a fine movie like it's just fine and the second one got just crapped on unnecessarily i I felt but because of that it always kind of felt like he got shafted a little bit because i always liked andrew garfield as spider-man 
Um, and as Peter Parker, I just the rest of the movie, like some of the dialogue was kind of wonky, and the rest of the vill- the villains were not particularly that great, right? Like the Green Goblin, like the Harry Osborn Green Goblin, and Jimmy Fox's Electro was kind of weird, and you know Paul Giamatti as like the guy in the 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 Rhino suit, which they make fun of in this movie, which is kind of funny, but. Ultimately speaking, he got shafted a little bit. So it's it's kind of nice to see when he gets a little bit more support and they focus on him a little more that I think it's very clear he is a good actor. We all knew that, obviously, right? But that he's a good actor as Spider-Man, right? So I thought that was kind of cool. He gets some redemption just like kind of in a meta sense. Um, he also gets some redemption in, a, in the movie as well when Zendaya's um, MJ falls off the uh, Statue of Liberty and seemingly to her death, Tom Holland jumps after her the Green Goblin whisks her away. And then I think in that moment, and I think it's wise they did it the way they did, because in that moment, I don't think a single person in that movie theater, anyone who was watching, actually thought they were going to kill arguably one of the world's most famous TV and movie actresses in Zendaya, um, in, a, in a Marvel movie, no less, right? <laughs> I think uh, everyone and their mother knew that one of the other Spider-Men was going to save her, and it made so much sense narratively to have Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man be the one to save her after he failed to save Gwen Stacy in that last movie, right? So I think they did a fantastic job of selling that and how he looked sad. And they they did kind of undercut it, which you know has been a criticism of mine of the Marvel movies. They did undercut it with some humor, but I think it was like they let the beat land long enough for you to be like everyone for to cheer and then she you know she asks him she, he asks her, are you okay and then she asks him are you okay and i don't know it was a good that was another fantastic moment again relies on your knowledge of the previous movies but i think uh ultimately it was well done um i think i don't think this is a, a very a very uh hot take let's say but i think saying that willem dafoe was the star of this movie i think is <laughs> it's pretty straightforward right I mean he was fantastic he was so good I like he first of all I went back and looked at some clips from uh from Spider-Man 1 which I guess was just called Spider-Man but for the sake of this discussion just to be not confusing uh let's call it Spider-Man 1 I went back and looked at it he looks so similar to what he looked like then it is uncanny and of course there's this moment i can't believe we actually got this in no way home but there was this moment from the original movie this is the original clip you know i'm something of a scientist myself honestly when that moment happened in the theater for no way home when they kind of retread that moment i i was is weird to think i was only like one of like maybe like five or six people in the theater that actually like laughed out loud which made me think to myself, like, did people not get the joke? It was a pretty, like, oh, like, that is one of, in my opinion, the oldest memes to exist, period. Like, the only memes that, that are older than that, just in a general sense, that exist today are like, the internet's a series of tubes, right? Remember that? They all, I think I'm something of a scientist myself, is one of the oldest memes I have ever seen, like, in pop culture, at the very least. And that... Uh, it was referenced in this movie as nothing short of one million percent hilarity. Um, but Willem Dafoe is just fantastic. As Norman Osborn, he was good. But of course, as the maniacal Green Goblin, he's even better. They did a great job of kind of introducing him for the first time. When you see Willem Dafoe's face, I should say, when you see him, he smashes the helmet. And you kind of think to yourself, okay, he's buried the Green Goblin for now. But of course, you knew he was going to come back. And the scene where they reintroduce him, where Peter's spider senses are tingling, that was really cool. Just in the way it was depicted visually, like he was kind of like in a in a trance or in some kind of fog of war type moment. 
and then he he settles on Norman. And there was a point where uh, Alfred Molina, who I haven't mentioned at all, but he was fantastic as well in a much smaller role. But Alfred Molina uh, looks at uh, Norm- uh, at Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborn, and he goes, Norman? And Willem Dafoe barks back, Norman's on sabbatical. And I, I knew at that moment we were in for a treat. The, I think they did a good job of depicting the Green Goblin as a particularly vicious version of this character, right? Like, maybe maybe he always was like this, and it was just never shown so overtly. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, we see we see the Green Goblin in the original movie, like, blow people up. Remember, he, like, throws the, like, the green bomb, the pumpkin bomb or whatever, into the, the office full of the people from Oscar. He, like, literally, I think you see their skeletons. He, like, vaporizes them. So he, like, kills people. We know he kills people. But I guess in the MCU, we haven't seen this level of brutality and also i think they did a good job of selling how strong he is because he like beats the snot out of peter and their their uh the resulting uh the resulting confrontation in the resulting confrontation and he just boy like peter wailing on his face while he's laughing and he's like smiling and you know, all the, I don't know, it was just a treat to see Willem Dafoe re-inhabit this character with a new kind of sort of costume, um, kind of, sort of, uh, you know, a new take on it, but still the same. I just, I really, really liked it. So Willem Dafoe gets uh, two thumbs up, for me at least, because he was so, so much fun. But again, I think using the Green Goblin to be the one to eventually kill Aunt May, I think, lends some poignancy to this, while they, they still cure him in the end. And again, at the end of this movie... They, I don't want to put this, like, they essentially soft reboot Spider-Man is what they do at the end of this film, right? They soft reboot it because from a real life sense, there's a chance, however unlikely, that Sony decides to just say, all right, you know what, we're done making Spider-Man movies with you, Marvel. Um, We're going to put Tom Holland in our own Spider-Man movies, which they could easily do if they wanted to. But I think given that uh, No Way Home is one of the highest, I think it's Sony's now highest grossing movie ever. And it is easily the highest grossing movie of the year, despite having only been out in 2021 for a couple of weeks. Um, I mean, that just speaks to the state of the box office, I think. But still, this movie is going to make, if it hasn't already, made a billion dollars. So I think uh, the chances of them keeping Spider-Man and Tom Holland around in the Marvel Universe is a pretty good one. But they rebooted it in the sense that he, if they decide not to do that, he doesn't have to be. Um, but also now that nobody, you know, based on the end of the movie, Doctor Strange casts a magic spell... Uh, you know, no one remembers who Peter Parker even is. So he can kind of move on with his life and you can kind of still tell those small scale stories because a big part of this movie was that Spider-Man goes to MIT and his friends eventually do get in thanks to his like finagling at the end of the movie. But he does not, which I guess makes sense because we know he doesn't leave New York. He fights crime in New York. How's he going to fight crime in New York if he goes to MIT, which is in Boston, right? So I think this also opens the door for more New York Spider-Man stories like Maybe in the near future, uh, in the next movie, if we do get a standalone Spider-Man 4 at some point, maybe Gwen Stacy is introduced, or maybe the Harry Osborn analog is introduced, because Norman Osborn, like the Willem Dafoe Norman Osborn, does say in this film that there is no Oscorp. That doesn't mean there's no, like, Norman Osborn, but it does mean that it's not quite as prominent as it was at the time. And again, maybe they just decide to not go in that direction for a Norman Osborn. I know I've said on this podcast before, I wish they did, but if they don't, then maybe what they end up doing is uh, 
they go a different direction. We've already seen in uh, in Hawkeye, and again, this is a spoiler for Hawkeye, but we have already seen that the Kingpin is in Hawkeye, and I mean, the Kingpin and Spider-Man share a pretty colorful history as well, right? So we'll have to see in what directions they go. Um, but it'll be really fascinating because, you know, Spider-Man's back to sewing his own costume and no one knows who he is and he's listening to the police scanner and he doesn't have the resources of Iron Man anymore, right? So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ground they can cover now that he's not the, the Iron Man protege anymore, right? So, uh, a soft reboot of sorts for Spider-Man and No Way Home. Ultimately, like I said, I really liked it. As for its place in the Marvel canon right now. Again, maybe this is like being a prisoner of the moment slash recency bias, but I'm immediately tempted to say it is a top five Marvel movie. Like, I would still probably take the original Iron Man, maybe maybe Infinity War. I, I kind of tend to think Infinity War and Endgame of like as two, like as the same movie almost, like as just like a really long movie. So I'm going to just say Infinity War slash Endgame is two, right? Or not in any order, but just like Iron Man is one. Uh, Infinity slash Endgame is another. Um, I'd probably still take Winter Soldier and maybe the original Guardians of the Galaxy. You know what? Maybe I'd take Black Panther over too. So maybe this means that Spider-Man No Way Home is like in that 6 to 10 range. That that seems about right to me, actually, now that I've, been th- I've talked it through. That seems about right. Um, because the, But the, to be fair, there are not a lot of other movies I would take over it. Like, I would certainly take this over the other two Spider-Man movies. I would take it over Guardians 2. I would take it over... I liked Thor Ragnarok. I would probably take it over Thor Ragnarok because of nostalgia, I freely admit. But still, it's by the thinnest of margins, but I would still take it over that one. Um, and there are some other good ones as well, but you guys, you get what I mean, right? So, yeah, No Way Home, fantastic watch, a real crowd pleaser. Am I influenced by the fact that I saw it in a crowded theater, didn't get COVID, (laughs) and, uh, still managed to kind of be a part of the energy of the crowd? Maybe. That's definitely a real possibility, but at the same time, if that's the case, you know what? I don't regret it, because it was so much fun that I would watch it again in a heartbeat, and I can't wait for it to come out on Disney Plus or on on like on demand because I'm for sure going to watch it again as soon as humanly possible because it was just such a fun watch, right? And I I will say this, maybe as to wrap up, if you are like 15 years old and or some you know if you like my point being if you haven't watched the original movies because I I forget what the timeline was but if I think the Tommy McGuire Willem Dafoe movie came out in what 2001 or 2002 that seems right right because Blade came out in the mid 90s X-Men came out in the late 90s X-Men 2 came out shortly after that and then Spider-Man came out after that um with Sony because the other ones were from Fox uh that seems right to me so if that's I like I myself was what if it was if it was 2002 I was 12 when it came out So that essentially means that if you're 15 now or you're even younger, you will have very likely not seen those movies. And there's a chance you may not have seen Andrew Garfield's movies as well, considering where those movies came out, right? Like the mid-2010s, early 2010s. So if that's the case, this movie will probably fall a little short for you, which is, again, maybe why people didn't really laugh too much at the... I'm something of a scientist myself because it is admittedly a dated reference. But, like, maybe you do miss out on some of the references here but i i do think still that just the the way they told the story just in that peter parker 
leaning on the help of other Peter Parkers. As much as that is a fan service moment, I do think that it it is kind of standalone cool to see them tell that story, even if you may not know all of the references. Um, I didn't really talk too much about the other uh, villains. I didn't too, talk too much about Alfred Molina or Reese Fons or... Um, or uh, Thomas Hayden Church, right? I didn't, or Jamie Foxx. I didn't really talk too much about many of them. They were all fine, right? They were all fine. Alfred Molina does get the first major appearance. As you see in the trailer, you see him, because he was the first big reveal in the trailer, like before anyone saw the movie, right? You see him fight Doc Ock on the highway. But it does end, end in a great moment where he realizes that <laughs> that Peter Parker is not his Peter Parker. And that kind of opens the door to like, how did they get there and so on. I thought it was really interesting the way they did that, and I'm glad that they didn't revert Alfred Molina to being evil, because when they kind of quote-unquote cure him, he doesn't go back to being evil. He ends up helping them in the end, which I think is kind of fun, because I think it's important to remember, Otto Octavius, like in the in the world of these movies, in the world of the Tobey Maguire movie, he's not an evil guy. He's not a bad guy. It was just that, the remember like the whole, the whole thing was that like his, the chip on the back of his neck that controlled the arms ended up... Uh, ended up being what screwed him, right? So Peter fixes the chip, and he goes back to being, like, a friendly, normal Dr. Octopus, Otto Octavius. And uh, it was actually a nice little moment where he talks to Peter, and he says, they ask each other how they are, and they're, like, kind of heartwarmed to see that each other is okay, which is kind of fun, because they were friends, right? I think that was kind of a a cool moment. But um, we had a couple moments like that, for example, like after Jamie Foxx meets Peter Parker for the first time, or after... Um, like Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker or Dr. Connors meets Sam and stuff. It just, there were some fun reunions and uh, Jamie Foxx did have one of the best lines when, well, he had two of the best lines. One where he said, you guys realize I'm standing out here butt ass naked. That was pretty funny. And then the second line being when he thought that uh, Andrew Garfield was black and he says, well, there's got to be a black Spider-Man out there somewhere. As we all know, we know who that's referring to, i.e. Miles Morales. But I just think that this movie, again, to get, bring it all the way back to the beginning, it is fan service to movie. It is without a doubt. There's no, there's no way around it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But I do think, again, the way they utilize the fan service and the nostalgia, I think, tells a coherent story and leaves you satisfied in the end, both for the telling of the other Peter Parkers and Tom Holland's Peter Parker as to his place in the MCU, right? It does leave some questions at the end, but I think that's a good thing, right? Because now we can see wherever Disney and Marvel and Sony as well want to take this character, they can go in that direction. And heck, they even had Tom Hardy in for a fun little cameo in the after credit scene. And uh, now they can do the Venom symbiote in their own way as well. It's not going to be Tom Hardy, I think, as we now know. But uh, heck, I mean, if they if, if they decided they got enough of a great fan reaction from the Amazing Spider-Man version of Andrew Garfield, maybe they'll make an Amazing Spider-Man 3, right? Maybe they'll have Tom Hardy's Venom be one of the characters in the Amazing Spider-Man 3. That could, they could easily do that because they've shown that Andrew Garfield is good enough to do it, right? So anyways, a lot of possibilities for Spider-Man going forward. All of them seem pretty fun, but No Way Home... I'm glad it was one of the last movies they watched in 2021 because it was a great way to wrap up the uh, MCU slate for this past 12 months.
All right, let's skip right along to the uh, next movie on the docket for today. Actually, you know, I, I, I've been squeezing so many movies into um, each episode of the podcast that only doing two movies, kind of like we used to do when I first started this whole thing, it's kind of funny, right? I Usually I'm like, okay, we got to get to like five more movies in this episode, but we're actually only doing one more. So the uh, next and last movie on the docket for 2021, crazily enough, um, our review of The Matrix Resurrections by Elena Wachowski. I dare say I have maybe never seen a sequel to a beloved franchise quite like The Matrix Resurrections. You know, I think, uh, first of all, when they announced that they were even making a Matrix 4, I thought to myself, what could this movie even be about? Because, you know, the original Matrix movies made by the Wachowskis, um, they... they're, They're like an interesting story because they're so heavily philosophical while also doing some really crazy choreography action scenes. You know what I mean? Like, it's arguably one of the most famous sci-fi action franchises, maybe ever. And The Matrix Resurrections kind of turns it all on its head, and I think it has now generated some pretty divisive opinions amongst the fan base. I, generally speaking... I didn't hate this movie, but I I can't quite bring myself to say that I liked it. I like it was fine, I guess, but it it just I can't I don't really remember the last time I saw a movie where it, when one moment I I thought to myself, "Boy, this is really cool." And then, "Man, this stinks." <laughs> like in, in and then and then the very next moment, "Ah, you know what? Actually, this is cool." Mm, no, actually, not very good. You know that meme of like the girl being like, "Huh. Nah. Oh, maybe." But no. But maybe though, you know that that this is that this movie is that meme in in re- all its true reality glory, right? It's just such a strange film, and a part of it is because it is meta, right? You kind of pick up learning that Neo is a game designer, and Thomas Anderson, I should say, is a game designer who has designed a trio of games: The Matrix, The Matrix Reloaded, The Matrix Revolutions, uh, and he has had a psychotic break in which he is unable to discern reality from fiction. Now, you eventually learn that he is just in another version of the Matrix and the machines are trying to screw with him and stuff. You know, it does sort of answer the question as to how he came back to life um, after the events of the first movie, um, how Trinity comes back to life after the events of the, or after the events of the most recent movie, I should say, how both of them come back to life. And... It does answer the question of where Morpheus is and how Morpheus is related here. It does answer the question of Agent Smith and so on. But I'm not sure that they're like satisfying answers, I think, is the problem. Like you heard off the top, for example, uh, the 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 cover of the the famous Rage Against the Machine song, Wake Up, and it is now sung. I think the I forgot what the name of the band was called that does the cover. It, I like I generally speaking liked the cover. I, I listened to it um after the movie and I listened to it again before I did this episode of the podcast. And generally speaking, I thought the the woman's vocals were fantastic. And I think like a large part of this movie I think does have to do like there's no way around it that um since they made the first one the Wachowskis both came out as trans, right? And Lana Wachowski did do this movie without the help of her sister. 
Um, but I think that does kind of play a large part into why Neo is not like he's not really the one. Like he is, but isn't. And it's now it's kind of like Neo and Trinity are both the one. And I think a large part of that has to do with like gender politics and gender identity and so on. I shouldn't say politics. That's not right. Mostly gender identity. And I really do think that. I, hey, look, I think they did a good job with it, but at the same time, just from like a movie watching narrative standpoint, I think like I feel like the movie was so concerned with subverting what you thought was going to happen, right? Like a, a large part of the first third of the movie with Neo questioning reality, that was fantastic. I think if the whole movie had been more like that, I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. The ones they kind of were like, oh, yeah, by the way, we have to get to the lore of the Matrix universe with, like, Z- what happened to Zion and, like, Niobe is in this movie and what happened to actual Morpheus played by Lawrence Fishburne? What happened to him, right? Like, they, ha- they have to get to all of those plot points and it's kind of like they were like, oh, okay, well, we kind of paid our lip service to all the all the crazy stuff that went on in the first third of the movie because the final, like, the final two-thirds, let's say, were kind of meh, I think. And here's the thing. The actual when they when they did get around to explaining like what happened in the immediate aftermath of Neo sacrificing himself at the end of the Matrix Revolutions, and they talked there was a machine war apparently like they 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 had a civil war between themselves and you know what happened with Morpheus and all that. Like I didn't hate those answers. I didn't hate them. They may not have been immediately satisfying, but the problem was that they were interspersed by such boring action scenes that I was almost taken aback because if there's one thing that's, and again, they, they make this joke at the beginning of the movie, like what is synonymous? Cause they're, 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 they're talking about how the game studio and this like fake reality at the beginning of the movie in the matrix in the, in the new version of the matrix at the beginning of the film, they talk about how uh, the studio Warner brothers, they actually say this in the movie that Warner brothers has dragged them all out to make a matrix four. And so they're all talking about what the matrix four is, right? Like what, what does the matrix mean to people? And so people say, is it trans politics? Is it, uh, is it action? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, is it a breakdown of the capitalist fascist movement? Is it blank? Whatever, right? Whatever you can, whatever people have discussed about the matrix in the past 20 years, they, they kind of spewed in that scene. And one guy's like, what do people think of when they come to the Matrix? It's bullet time, action sequences, right? And you know what? As funny as that is, and as as kind of self-referential as it is, I think that's fair. I think that is actually valid, which is why I think a lot of people were disappointed with this, because the action sequences, like, if you think of the famous action sequences from the first movie, right? What do you think of? You think of the bullet time sequence, for sure. But you also think of... Uh, the fight in the subway, right? When Agent Smith goes like, remember he's like going like a, punching him like a million times and so on. You think of a lot of those scenes, you think of the um, insane sequence in the lobby when they have like the bags of guns, remember that? And then in, in the second one, the famous fight with, uh, I mean, boy, there's so many different fights in the second one, but like you think of uh, the fight against the bajillion Agent Smiths in that like basketball court, you think of um the the highway fight right like the car chase the very lengthy car chase with like the ghost twins uh you think of the right before that you think of the fight i guess it was this all one sequence but the fight in the in like the lobby of the merovingians like fancy like penthouse or whatever right like you think of all of those the merovingian does by the way have a fantastic very brief kind of unintelligible cameo in this movie but it did make me smile um but you think of all of those moments right 
all of the even biggest set pieces in this movie. For example, there's one on a train. And I think the final set piece where they fight in this cafe, and the cafe is called the Simulate. I want that to be real so badly. Please, someone, if you're listening, make the Simulate. Make that a real... I don't care I don't care where. Just make that into a real shop because that is absolutely hilarious. Um, but uh, I don't know. I just feel like they were... It wasn't like they were bad inherently. It's just like the cuts... Like, you, you're about to see someone land a punch... And then it cuts to a different character doing something else, right? And I think I've complained about this before, but it's almost like it was a very, like, westernized for way of depicting a, a fight, right? Like a hand-to-hand fight. And I think that maybe it suffered because the original choreographer who, who did the original Matrix movies and, of course, did Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as well, that person did not return. Bill Pope, who was the original three cinematographer, that guy did not return. And I think in the previous years, like after Revolutions came out, I think he had said that he like he, had a, he was miserable while filming the original three. And he worked with the Wachowskis a lot, so I wonder if they had some kind of falling out. But those, those two did not return. And... I think the movie was worse off for it. Like, I think if the, everything else was the same and those two returned, I think even just the way it looked, like, visually, it would have been more appealing. Because I think that was the main issue with this movie. It just didn't look very nice. The other part of it that I kind of had a problem with it, too, was simply that every time anything important happens, they cut back to a scene from one of the first three movies. There was a cool part, for example, where... Like, Neo walks through into a theater, and he sees, like, the projection screen is torn, and on the projection screen is is Lawrence Fishburne's Morpheus from, like, the scene where he hands Neo the red pill or the blue pill. And that was cool because it looked visually interesting. But it's just, like, every other time it happened after that or before that, it would just, like, flash back to, like, for a split second to the previous movies. And like, I just, I don't know. You guys have heard me complain about, like, you know, you don't need to show all the time. And... It almost felt like they were treating you like you were stupid for not remembering the original movies. I don't know. Ultimately, I didn't I didn't love that part of it because I didn't really feel like it was necessary. I don't think it was all bad, though. I mean, certainly it was fun to see Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss inhabit their old roles again, and they still have as much chemistry as they did back then, which is to say a lot. Um, they're kind of kind of love story which i think now it can be also be interpreted as them they're being kind of the same person they're like two halves of a whole based on how they've kind of evolved the narrative of the one in with this fourth movie if that's how you want to take it i think it's completely valid um but uh the new additions of jessica henwick jonathan groff neil patrick harris and yaya abdul mateen um, I think we're all phenomenal, right? Like, for example, Yaya Abdul-Mateen is a computerized, like, he's a, a former agent who becomes, like, is awoken to being Morpheus within the Matrix. So he's not real, like, he's not a real person. He's a, he's a computer program um, who is now Morpheus. And, of course, he's not played by Lawrence Fishburne, he's played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen. And I guess the idea being that, like, this is a new Matrix, so all of the characters who you know and love kind of look different. I think that's, that was a cheap explanation for essentially why Lawrence Fishburne and why Hugo Weaving and Agent Smith are not in this movie because Jonathan Groff is now Agent Smith. I do think that Jonathan Groff was my favorite addition just because it was it seemed very nuanced because he was kind of being Agent Smith 
while also not being himself as well. It's, it was like Agent Smith 2.0 and Morpheus 2.0, which I thought was kind of interesting. But again, when they fight, they didn't do anything interesting with it, right? Like, they didn't do anything interesting, like, when when uh, Smith has Morpheus captured and they go to rescue him and so on, right? With the infamous lobby scene like we talked about. They just don't do anything interesting like that, which is kind of a shame. Um and but either way, the performances from those two were, I think, good. Um, even if it doesn't really like, it's not really explained particularly well. I just think it was just in the moment they were good to see. Um, Neil Patrick Harris as kind of the new architect. He he is called the analyst. I'll take Neil Patrick Harris and anything I can get. But I thought he like whereas the architect was kind of like precise, cold, calculating, speaking in a monotonous tone, lifting his eyebrows sometimes techno babble and so on neil patrick harris's character was essentially like he was like kendall roy from succession he was like an arrogant annoying patronizing tech bro that you see in movies these days and you know what i think that's what they were going for and i think neil patrick harris nailed it right that right down to what he was wearing in terms of like the kind of cardigan and jeans and so on right i think they did a fantastic job um even if again the ending of it was a little weird uh, but still, I thought he did a good job of being like the overarching architect of this new Matrix. Um, he was fun to watch. And of course, Jessica Henwick, who I think is just a star, right? I mean, it's funny to think that she was in uh, Iron Fist, which is where I had first seen her. She was in Iron Fist as... I forgot that character's name because, God, Iron Fist was just awful. That was a terrible TV show. Everything about it was awful, except for Jessica Henwick. And um, do you also remember she was in Game of Thrones very briefly as one of the Sand Snakes? I think they did her a little dirty in that one because they did all the Sand Snakes dirty in Game of Thrones because that was the those are the bad seasons of Game of Thrones. But she was also one of the pilots, again, very briefly in um, some of the... I forget if it was The Last Jedi or if it was The Rise of Skywalker, but um, either way, she was in some of the sequel trilogy movies for uh, Star Wars. So I think she's had some pretty, like, those roles like, in, in Game of Thrones and in Star Wars were relatively small, Iron Fist being her largest role, I think, to date. But she is so, so good. Like, if she is not more famous, at the very least, because of this, I think that's the greatest disservice to come out of The Matrix 4, because she is just so, so fantastic, and I can't wait to see her in more things. And last I checked, I think she was cast in Knives Out 2, which should be a lot of fun, because she is, she is really fun to watch. Um, but I think apart from those four and apart from the, just seeing the old versions of, uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss's Neo and Trinity, like the Matrix Resurrections just seemed kind of unnecessary, right? And I think they kind of allude to it at the beginning of the movie where they basically say, look, the studio's making us do this. They're dragging us back out. Warner Brothers wants the Matrix 4. They want to make some money. They're making us do this. You might not like it, but here we go. I think that's essentially Lana Wachowski saying, this is what you're getting, pal. Like, don't, don't strap yourselves in because I'm gonna, I'm telling you exactly the rest of this, how the rest of this movie is gonna go. I think that's probably the most honest reading of this entire film, right? I think maybe some people had their expectations too high. Maybe I did. Maybe I'm a victim of that. But um, or maybe I shouldn't say I'm a victim. Maybe I fell victim to my own expectations. Is what I should say. But uh, yeah, I just ultimately, it's unfortunate that. <laughs> The Magic Resurrections ended up being my actual last movie of 2021 because I saw No Way Home before. But uh, you know what? I'm glad I saw it because I was a big fan of the original movies. And you know what? Those movies will always be there. I can always kind of pretend this one doesn't exist. I did actually like the way they took like the lore of like Zion, the new city IO, and the way ma- machines have evolved and so on. They did a lot of really interesting things with that. It's just it was told in such a bonkers way that I just couldn't really engage with it too much. 
even if some parts of it were generally speaking kind of sort of interesting but again matrix resurrections i don't think we'll see a sequel to this i think it this was a one-off i don't ever think we'll see a matrix five or six i could be wrong who knows maybe warner brothers forces someone else to make it but I uh, I hope they at this point just let it die quietly, and uh, maybe we can uh, talk about some. Maybe we can talk about the next Matrix in the uh, not too distant future. But uh, you know what? Given the state of Hollywood these days, I'm uh, not gonna hold my breath. That does it for this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. That is it from me for movies in 2021. Again, I can't believe I got the last episode of the podcast in just under the wire this year. Um, I hope you have had a good year. I hope you've had managed to see movies uh, wherever you are. I hope you've managed to see whatever movies you've wanted to see. Um, and heck, whether it's the MCU, whether it is West Side Story, whether it's The French Dispatch, I hope you've managed to see whatever it is you want. In 2022, I think we're going to be looking forward to the Oscar window, right? I guess it's kind of already opened, but we're going to be looking more at those movies. We'll maybe look back to some of the movies I looked at at TIFF and maybe get get to the, some of the ones I haven't watched already, specifically The Power of the Dog, The French Dispatch, and so on. I, somehow, I don't think The Matrix or a Spider-Man will be getting nominated for too many Oscars. I suppose it's possible maybe like a special effects Oscar for... No Way Home, because they do do some interesting things, but ultimately speaking, um, I doubt it. Uh, Coming up to, I think in a couple of weeks, maybe even less than that, uh, we'll get uh, Josh Goldberg, my pal, on for a chat about the state of the Marvel Universe. We haven't done that in a while. Josh came on with me, I think, boy, a couple of years ago now to chat about the state of the MCU at that point. So it'll be fun to kind of take a second look around to see what's going on in the MCU. Um, Again, I know some of you may uh, maybe more on the side of their roller coasters and not real movies, but still, they are entertaining. And as long as they are, I think we'll keep covering them here on the Showtime Movie Podcast. But I hope you all had a uh, Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays if you did not celebrate Christmas. I hope you all have a Happy New Year. And until next time, you've been listening to this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Have a great night. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. And a Happy New Year.